0: Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Wit's University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus.
1: Good afternoon, and
0: uh, we're going up uh, about three hours outside of Johannesburg to Nelspruit in South Africa, where we're joined by Huang Hongxiang, uh, who is a name that's been popping up in the media quite a bit these past couple of days. You'll find an article that he wrote on on our website at the China Africa Project. Uh, Hongxiang is a freelance journalist for both Chinese, uh, English, and South African media, and he's also a fellow at the China Africa Reporting Project uh, at Vits University where two Chinese journalists are fellows there. And uh, we are just thrilled to have you on the show today, Hongxiang. Thank you. And, professor. and also, Hongxiang, you are a – I just want to give you a little shout-out. You're a recent Columbia University graduate, and you participated in this really fantastic website called the China South Dialogue, and that's at ChinaGoingOut.org. That's in both English and Chinese. And we'll kind of touch on that a little bit today as well. So, so excellent work there. Thank you. Well, today we're going to uh, really take advantage of, uh, of Hong Xiang's presence on the show to talk about, yes, yet again, ivory. Now, this is what's so interesting is because what Hong Xiang's been doing as part of his fellowship at Vitz is kind of going undercover into the uh, some of the South Africa and the Johannesburg ivory markets, talking to both Chinese vendors and also uh, various African uh, vendors as well to kind of get a better understanding of what's happening here. And part of what we want to do is really kind of take all the conversation that's been going on over on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash China-Africa project and move it to the next step. There's a lot of screaming and yelling and shouting that's been going on about China shut the ivory factories and in some ways it's been a frustration for me because it's this vast oversimplification of the problem and you know evgeny morozov the 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 known uh, writer from stanford and, and and elsewhere he wrote a book and he called it he called it slacktivism which is on facebook it's really easy to come up with these simple solutions and scream and yell but what we're going to hear today from hong xiang is that the problem is much much more complicated so hong xiang before we get started into the the nitty-gritty of how this is happening and why it's happening in terms of the, the mass killing of elephants and China's role in this. Um, I think it'd be good if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about the reporting that you've been doing and how you've been going about doing it, particularly the undercover investigative work.
2: Sure. Uh, so to protect my sources, there are some information about the investigation process that I cannot release. But basically, I did two parts of investigation. One is the supply side, which I try to contact like the local supplier of ivory and rhino horns. And the other side is the demand side. I did some undercover investigation among the Chinese community, both in South Africa and in Mozambique. And I tried to understand, like, who are they? Why are they buying? And so what are they thinking in their heads?
0: Okay, so now that that's there, who are they and why are they buying? Let's just get right to it.
2: Okay, so sure, um... First, I think we need to differentiate. Basically, there are two products we are talking about here. One is rhino horn, one is ivory. Like in my reporting, I can focus more on the rhino horn one, and later I, I, I'm trying to do another story more related to ivory one. But I think like they are basically different. And in terms of both rhino horn and ivory network, they are usually five level in terms of like the organizing, the local culture, the local organizer the national local organizer, the Chinese in Africa who are buying from the national local organizer, and the Chinese or Vietnamese organizer back in China and Vietnam. So in terms of who are buying here, they are mainly the, I would say there are two sides. One is like the Chinese immigrants in South Africa and Mozambique, one is like a Chinese sample from China, and then they are working in Chinese companies in South Africa and Mozambique.
0: Okay.
1: Colby's. Um Yeah, so, you know, I, I found your, your, the, work, the, the reporting work that you've done incredibly interesting. Um, can you give us an idea about how difficult it was to actually get face-to-face with rhino horn and ivory on the streets of Johannesburg?
2: Oh, I would say, like, so for ivory, it's very easy. Ivory, like, in the in Chinatown, you can find a little flea market there. If you go inside, and if you are Chinese, the owners of the shop, they will approach you quickly, and they will ask you, do you want Xiangya? Xian ya means ivory in Chinese. So, and then they will show you those ivory products. But in terms of rhino horns, because rhino horns, the per kilo price is much higher than ivory. So usually they don't, would not just put them in market. They would say they have, but you need to go to somewhere else to see it.
0: Now, in order to, to better understand the complexity of this issue, one of the things that you, you, did, you kind of highlighted in your reporting, and again, there's an excellent blog post on our website about this, is you talk about the questions of class and, and, and education level, and that a lot of the people who are involved in this trade uh, don't see any morality to it. It's not a it's not a moral question to them. It's simply a way to make money. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, again that question of who is doing this and the people and where they come from and what's 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 that like and what how important that is.
2: Sure. Uh, first, I really agree with you that like so. I think doing this is just part of those people's business. No matter on the poacher, the local poacher side, or like on the Chinese side, but then from the Chinese, so let's talk about like who are the Chinese involved in business like ivory and rhino horn. So I would say basically there are three levels. The first level is like the Chinese, maybe they are Chinese sent by Chinese company, and maybe they are tourists when they come to a place like Africa, especially in Mozambique, you where you have much, much lower like punishment it's quite easy for them to just buy some souvenir to bring home to give to people because it's just our culture that when Chinese go far away to travel, when you go home, you should bring some people something that you get from the local place that is unique. And there would be the second kind of Chinese involved in this kind of business is usually the Chinese small businessman, like in Africa. For example, like in Pemba, the Chinese timber businessman, there would be, sometimes they would smuggle ivory through their containers of timber. And the third kind of Chinese is, well, this is much more like rumor, but there are some saying about something called diplomatic channel as well, which means the visiting Chinese officials, they will actually get some ivory back to China by their special airplane. And the problem about class is, so, usually the people... The Chinese people involved in buying ivory, they're usually the relatively less educated Chinese, like in China. So to understand this, we need to understand, like, who are the Chinese that actually come to Africa? There was a Chinese businessman. He told me a sentence. Well, if you, if you have other choice to have a better life in China, you will not come to a place like Africa. So in the eyes of Chinese, Africa is not really a, really a good place to go. So a lot of the Chinese, they come here they, to do business. is because, well, they don't have very good education in China and they don't have very good opportunity in China. So they come here. The t- typical type of this person is like relatively under, undereducated Chinese who barely speak like language, the foreign language, no matter English or Portuguese. And they have no much understanding about foreign culture and the things like environment. They come here, search tea for money. So that's the typical type of Chinese that are involved in this kind of
0: business. And I think, Cobus, this is an Um, interesting point here that I want to kind of get your your take on because when we hear the debate, particularly coming from the West and environmental activists, um, it's always focused on the idea of the Chinese government and you know the chinese government must stop this and stop that but no matter what the chinese government do does it's not going to have any effect on this peasant you know this chinese peasant operating you know a small ivory business or just doing it on the side and i think this is a key point that's missed by a lot of people in the discussion what was your take on that
1: yeah, no, I completely agree. I think I think the other part that's that's really also missed in, in the same in the same vein is you know kind of the the complicity of African governments. Um, and I actually want to ask Hong Shang about that a little bit. Um, you know, kind of you mentioned in your reporting in Johannesburg that you see police actually walking around the uh, the areas where where the ivory and so on are being sold, but that they're actually don't crack down on, on this being on, on the selling and they're actually out for, for other reasons. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what the role of the of police corruption and then also general corruption is on the way that, that in, and how it structures this kind of ivory and rhino trade. trade.
2: Uh, okay, so let me try to adjust like both of your, like, your po- the points from both of you. So I think right is correct that like, in terms of the Chinese government, it's very difficult for them to manage to actually monitor the small Chinese businessmen in Africa. In fact, they are actually, it's even difficult for them to make good statistics of what are the people, like, who are the people, where are they, what are they doing? It's just, like, it's big as the whole world, and it's difficult to manage. But then on the other side, I agree with, like, your point that, like, the local environment is actually an important factor. So, but first, let me correct a little bit. So, in terms of, like, the police walking around the ivory selling place, I'm more talking about Maputo, Mozambique, rather than in South okay. Africa. So, I think here it's actually related to, I believe, a uh, the second most important point about how to understand the Chinese involvement in African ivory is the environment. So, the first, the first we have, like, the education level of the Chinese here, they are not that high. But it's not necessarily that they are going to do a lot of illegal things. So it really depends on the environment. What I saw is, like, in South Africa, in Mozambique, it's totally different. In Mozambique, the, like, for example, the market of June 25, the policemen, they're actually wandering around the market all the time because they try to find some foreign-looking people and ask them to show their passport. If they can't show their passport then they can try to ask for some bribe. So they're actually quite wandering around the market while they have no interest in looking for the ivory at all. So that's what I saw in Mozambique. But in Johannesburg, actually in the South African side, from my limited experience, I actually feel the police, they are quite responsib- responsible and they are trying their best to find. I think like the reason why they cannot find the flea market is maybe there's huge communication gap between the Chinese and the local policemen, because for the local policemen, Asian communities, especially like Chinese-Vietnamese communities, are very close community, and it's very difficult for outsiders to get in and know any information. If I was, if there was not a Chinese who told me, oh, you should go to that flea market, I wouldn't know there's a flea market there selling ivory.
0: So, But I guess it's very important here to define the roles, and, and I guess... You know, when we talk about the Chinese involvement in the ivory trade and the slaughter of elephants, a lot of people have the Mm -hmm. mistaken idea, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here that the Chinese are actively involved in the actual killing of elephants, when in fact that is typically left to uh, either organized crime, uh, poachers, but who are, tend to be African themselves, whether they're from Mozambique or South Africa and whatnot. And the Chinese are actually involved in the processing, the trade, and the exportation of the ivory. Is that an accurate breakdown of the roles? Yes, I think you are right. So basically...
2: Well, I have an observation about the Chinese. So for Chinese, it's very easy for them, actually for us, to do things like we call which means like we do some small illegal things like in the great area of law. But usually Chinese would not like to commit heavy crime, like to actually with a whole gun, go to the field and kill elephants. And actually, it's also not smart for them to do so. So usually what Chinese do is, so first, most of the Chinese in terms of like this ivory trade, they are just and customers they just buy a small piece of ivory actually use usually less than 1 and 2 kilos in africa and then bring home to china and there are also some chinese who are involved like slightly stronger than this kind which is the chinese businessmen here they try to smuggle large amount of ivory for example in container in order to make money but even in that case they would just collect ivory from the local people
1: um, can, can, you know, kind of to, to pick up from that, if you were mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of give advice to African governments, like how, how do, what should African governments do to make this less, uh, you know, to, to make it harder to, to smuggle, ivory, to make it less attractive and more and more risky to do it? Like, or, like how, how should they respond?
2: Well, I think one of the most easy ways is actually to reduce the corruption in the airport custom. Because all the Chinese, like, no matter in South Africa, in Mozambique, well, mostly in Mozambique, they will tell you, don't worry about the local custom at all. Go there, pay them some money, and then you can ask them to leave your ivory alone. So if you can reduce the level of corruption in the African customs, it's going to help a lot. Because now the Chinese, they have no fear at all about bringing the ivory out of Africa. Their only concern is maybe in China they will be
0: caught. Yeah, I mean but that's a so, tall order. I mean the, the the corruption question across Africa, maybe with yeah. the exception of South Africa, is a big issue. But you know, I don't know whether I'm I'm happy to hear your report or I'm more depressed than I was before. <laughs> because on the one hand, uh you know, it's fascinating to kind of show the different textures of all the different actors that are here. On the other hand, I'm far more depressed because I really feel like it's even more complicated to, to actually find a solution here. So let me just recap what you've said. You've said that there's Chinese migrants, there's the complicity of African merchants, there's the complicity of certain African law enforcement, there's the complicity of corrupt or ineffective uh, you know, uh, customs enforcement, both in Africa and very much in China as well. There's corruption up and down China when it comes to these kinds of things as well. So, the question yeah. now let's just wrap this up. Last question to you. Is there any hope to save these elephants? Because it really doesn't seem like it based on what you're telling us.
2: I think so to understand this problem. I mentioned before that I think the first level is to understand the nature of people, the people who are involved. The second is to understand the nature of environment. And the third is to understand like the nature of the the business. So the reason why there's this, this kind of like, elephant uh, like ivory trading, poaching is so heavy. Actually I think these three aspects they also have some problem. And there are some actually some way to do it's actually not that difficult. For example, when the Chinese they're talking about we bring some small amount of ivory from here to China, usually they will say here is it's not a problem to get out at all. But in China if you bring less than one kilo, two kilo, if the airport finds them, you can just skip them to them and say, Well, you don't know that's that's a problem, and then you will be fine. But if we use, like, say, zero tolerance on, this, like, on the Chinese custom side, then you can really increase the risk of the Chinese people who are trying to smuggle ivory to China. And I believe that will help a lot.
0: Well, Huang Hongxiang is the editor or one of the initiators of the China South Dialogue. He's also a freelance journalist based uh, in South Africa right now. He wrote an excellent piece for The Mail and Guardian, which is one of South Africa's newspapers. You can look at it. Uh, by searching for rhino horn trade thrives in Joburg. Uh, he is also a fellow at the Vitz U- uh, University China Africa Reporting Project. And what I think is so important about reading what Huang, Huang Hongxiang is talking about is the Chinese side of it. And again, it really defeats this idea that there is a simple solution. The solution is not simply for China to shut the ivory carving factories. It is, it is, it is aggravating that that's, we're stuck on that. And I think, again, what what Hongxiang's reporting will do was help us, as he said, first understand and then from understanding we can find solutions. Hongxiang, my only concern is that we do not have a lot of time. And the pace of elephant killing is going up so fast. And as the Chinese market sucks it in, uh, there's almost an insatiable demand. So I just worry about time. But um, let's what we do at the end of every show is we kind of guide people to where on the Internet people can follow what you're doing, what you're reading. Uh, tell us a little bit if there's any sites in both Chinese and in English that you're writing for, either you're on Weibo or any blogs or Twitter feeds. Ah uh,
2: sure Actually the easiest way is just go to www.chinagoingout.org. I think it's actually similar to the China Africa project, but like the idea of us making this website is we think there need to be a website focusing on this China Africa project that is actually initiated by Chinese, but not the Chinese from China, but Chinese with international background. So that's our idea. So a lot of my articles will be posted there, and we are going to have a lot of
0: other discussion as well. Okay. Uh, Cobus, where can people find you on the web?
1: Um, you'll find us on, find me on our Facebook page um, where we also posted um, Hong Shang's article for mail and Guardian um, and uh, you'll see my name in brackets when I respond to comments and also you'll, you can find me on Twitter at Stadenesk. that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E and you can find me on uh, Twitter as well at
0: E-O-Lander E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R as well we're on the Facebook page together Cobus and I are moderating that page uh, Facebook.com slash China Africa Project also a little hat tip to uh, Henry Hall, who runs the ChinaAfricanNews.com website, and he's got a great weekly email. Uh, Hong Xiang, do you get that email from uh, ChinaAfricanNews.com? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. See, validated and and, and, and (laughs) Uh, it's an excellent email. And so I really recommend that you go there. And it's also another good way to stay on top of our podcast because Henry's kind enough to post a link to our podcast there uh, once a week. But if you want to follow our podcast, the best way to do it is over on iTunes. You can look for us, China Africa Project, or you can find us on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. We're on the BlackBerry Network and, of course, on Android and mobile apps for the iOS platform. So there it is. That's it for this Week. We'll be back again uh, in a few days with another edition of the China in Africa podcast.